The Gist is brought to you by Monster. Find employees who work as hard as you at monster.com slash hiring. Monster. Find better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, March 16th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have been led to believe that Merrick Garland won't earn plaudits. Merrick Garland won't warrant kudos. Merrick Garland won't even merit garlands. Yeah, the guy's got a Supreme Court name, though, doesn't he? Although, Judge Learned Hand had a better name and he was kept off the Supreme Court. But I think of such justices as Salmon P. Chase and Bushrod Washington and, of course, Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus Lamar. Oh, the best ever. But, you know, there were other Supreme Court justices like William Strong and Joseph Story. And while on their face, that doesn't sound so horrible. Billy Strong and Joe Story? Tom Swift with his pals, Billy Strong and Joe Story, solve crimes and go on pirate ships. In this episode, they team up with the whip-smart Sandy Day as she shows him a girl can team up with pirates, too. Anyway, here's current Republican Senator Orrin Hatch. Back in 1997, he was a Republican senator, too. And he was talking about a certain court nominee. Accordingly, I believe Mr. Garland is a fine nominee. I know him personally. I know of his integrity. I know of his legal ability. I know of his honesty. I know of his acumen. And he belongs on the court. Hatch went on to note wisely, I think. Opposition to this nomination will only serve to undermine the credibility of our legitimate goal of keeping proven activists off the bench. And then Senator and current Senator Chuck Grassley, who will be leading the charge of the Judiciary Committee against the idea of considering a nominee with a scant 10 months left in the Obama administration. So back in 1997, Senator Grassley said this about Merrick Garland. We have nothing against this nominee, Mr. Garland. He seems to be well qualified and would probably make a good judge in some other court where his uh, his uh, where the seat needs to be filled. Uh, Grassley's point back then was that he thought the D.C. Circuit could get by without another judge, save some money. So does this mean that Republicans are hypocrites? Only as much as it shows that Joe Biden's a hypocrite because in 1992, he talked about not nominating a judge. President Bush should consider following the practice of a majority of his predecessors and not, and not name a nominee until after the November election is completed. So the lesson is clear. Don't ever say anything nice about the other political party if you plan on staying in the Senate. No, 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 no. The lesson is clear. When it comes to judges, all politicians are hypocrites. I mean, all politicians are hypocrites all the time. But man, when it comes to judicial appointees, there's so much hypocrisy. Liberals say, we're for the Bill of Rights. Yeah, what about the Second Amendment? Conservatives say, there's got to be limited government. Yeah, what about abortion? What about stop and frisk? Nominations on both sides say, we're against litmus tests. Oh, but this guy, he's just just against our basic idea of jurisprudence. And by our basic idea of jurisprudence, I mean you make a chemical reaction from dyes extracted from lichen. You see if a piece of purple paper turns blue or red. In other words, it's a litmus test. But is it hypocrisy? Is it really hypocrisy? I mean, politicians want to win their side. And when it comes to the judiciary, shaded meanings should be celebrated. Well, I don't know celebrated, but maybe accepted. Because I think that asking a politician to act judiciously is as fraught as asking a judge to act 
act politically. They are politicians. They've been elected to advance an agenda. They argue for outcomes. They don't argue for process. Let them argue for their outcomes. Perhaps to some voters, one of the outcomes will have something to do with process. But I don't find it bad at all if senators were just to say, this guy seems smart, but he'd legalize abortion, and I'm against legal abortion. That sort of thing. Anyway, it'll never come to pass. I have no idea if Merrick Garland will come to pass or even come up for a vote. On the show today, I spiel about the argument that could trump Trump, and not one, but two interviews. We'll have Maria Konnikova on to talk about GMOs, and Jamel Bowie right now to talk about the GOP, specifically what chances the Donald has in the general. On this day, everyone's talking Trump. And believe me, in the spiel, I will be too. But I want to talk Trump with someone who's thought about Trump in ways that no one has put his finger on a couple of uh, key phenomena. Joining me now is Jamel Bowie. He's the chief political correspondent of this very enterprise slate. Hello, Jamel. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm well. So you wrote all about, you know, why Trump? Why Trump now? Right. We all know why Trump. It's all been said. There's so much anxiety. You traced it back to uh, racial animus and feeling of insecurity because of the Obama election. But I want to ask you, if Trump is the Republican nominee in the general election, how much room does he have to appeal to the people he's not already appealing with? A number of ways to ask this, but uh, knowing what you know about the factors at play for Trump's popularity, what what do we think about um, his future appeal? Yeah, I think its future appeal is really limited. I've been thinking about this quite a bit, just in terms of election forecasting. Trump is a bit of a wild card. It's hard to know how he will fare in a general election. But the more I think about it, um, the more the fact that his popularity does seem to be confined among a certain subset of white Americans suggests that he really doesn't have that much appeal. I think his domination of, of, of cable news, of media, makes him seem much more popular than he is. But if you look at just basic, you know, favorability polls among different demographics, his numbers are kind of historically bad, not just not just sort of bad for uh, a presidential candidate, but bad for a public figure. So among African-Americans, he has to be like a a negative 90 percent favorability rating or um, among Latinos, it's something like a negative 77 percent favorability rating among women. It's around negative 65 percent among uh, millennials, which obviously millennials cuts across various demographic groups. It's run negative 60, negative 65%. So you're looking at a guy who essentially cannot reach beyond maybe some loyal Republicans and his base among white working and lower middle class voters. I agree with you. I say this often. People say to me, well, we missed the phenomenon in the first place. He's upending everything we know. I guess you'd say, am I right, that all the stuff you laid out, how all those unpopular characteristics will work against him. But none of that's true for the Republican electorate. So you can't use the argument, oh, we were wrong. You wouldn't say those things about the Republican electorate that he is doing well with. Right. And and sort of the thing that I think people miss is that one of the reasons Trump was able to succeed in the Republican electorate is that there really wasn't any base for, you know, a serious counter mobilization. So much of what Trump is doing in the Republican Party 
is kind of just an amped up version of what's already been happening. And there was never, you know, everyone already sort of accepted as a basic premise that even a, um, you know, a establishment or a moderate politician would have to appeal to this faction of the Republican Party. What Trump has done is shown that this, A, this faction is much larger than anyone ever expected. And you can probably win a nomination on the strength of their votes. But in a general, in a broad electorate, that's just not, it's just not the case. You know, I, I listen to probably a little too much upon the trade at this point, and I hear a lot of folks say something to the effect of, well, oh, Trump can mobilize working class whites and really knock the uh, the air out of Democrats in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan. But what all these things miss is that those voters already left the Democratic Party. They're already 20 years removed from the point where the large majority of working class whites started voting Republican. I think in 2012, Obama won 36 percent of them. Um, most projections suggest that a Democrat who wins 34 or 33 percent of working class whites still wins the presidency if they maintain their numbers everywhere else. Yeah, and maintain. And that's not even taking into account that white women haven't voted for a Democrat for the last, I don't know, four elections. There's a good chance they will this time. Right. And so when you take the fact that white working class voters just aren't as important to Democratic chances as they once were, plus the fact that Trump is just astoundingly unpopular with everyone outside of the Republican Party, or at least the Republican primary electorate, then, you know, I I, I keep looking at this guy and I keep seeing, if not a, a loser, then someone uh, stands a very decent chance of of losing in a landslide. Yeah, I agree with you. Whenever I say stuff like this, however, and this will be my last question, people say, you know what? Don't take him for granted. Don't be blasé. Don't dismiss him. I'm sure you've gotten some version of that. What do you say? What well, I have gotten some version of that. And, and what I would say is that there's a difference between being dismissive and accurately kind of looking at someone's odds, right? You can look at Trump and say, this is a guy who has a small chance of winning and a outsized chance of losing and kind of the landslides you don't even really see anymore. That doesn't mean, therefore, that you don't do anything. All it means is that you you watch your flank and and if you're you know if you're the Democratic Party you do as much as you can to make that second outcome the most likely outcome. This idea that accurately evaluating an opponent means you're just gonna shrug your shoulders and say, well, I guess I don't have to do anything, is extremely silly. I mean, I don't think that 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 doesn't happen, especially among groups, teams who are operating at high levels. They take all their opponents seriously. There, skipping along in a daisy field of denial is Jamel Bowie. No, (laughs) Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent for Slate. Thank you, Jamel. Thank you. As a small business owner, you work endless hours to pursue your goals. So your business may be small, but your hours, they're expansive. The sunrise is your alarm clock, or perhaps the braying of a cock. Your lunch hour is eight minutes long. You need employees that work hard too. Monster has 20 years of experience finding the right people for the right job. Monster builds custom hiring solutions specific to your small business. Visit monster.com slash hiring for a limited time offer and to find employees who work as hard as you do. Monster, find better. (laughs) 
So if you're an empiricist, if you're a skeptic, the thing you want me most to talk about is global warming. Of course it's real. Of course the scientists have pretty much proved it. Of course, if you're a denier, you're a horrible person. But I got one that you don't want me to talk about, or maybe you do, but one that more scientists agree with than global warming itself. And this is a thing that people within our circle, meaning those who listen to podcasts probably are all up in arms about GMOs, genetically modified. I'm going to say the O's for organism. Mm-hmm. All right. I got it right. That was Maria Konnikova saying, mm-hmm. she is the author of The Confidence Game. She comes on to play Is That Bullshit? And uh, maybe I put my hand on the scale, Maria, but I've read many studies that say that scientists are four square behind the idea that there's no danger in genetically modified organisms. Am I overstating where the scientific consensus is? For lack of a better word, and even though we might sort of steal our own thunder, no, yeah. you're not overstating okay. it. <laughs> okay. So let's go, let's go back. What is a genetically modified organism? What's the, what's the strict definition? So I'm very glad you asked that because a lot of people misunderstand it and also are just scared because genetically modified, oh my God. But all it means is that we are targeting a specific gene in an organism and we're doing something to it. So we're, for instance, to genetically modify rice, you take a different strain of rice and you fit, you identify which part of that strain, for instance, makes it resistant to a certain bacteria. Mm-hmm. And then you insert that particular part into the genome of another species of rice that's not resistant. Freaky. And you see, can and you I make it resistant? wait for a thunderous night to bring it back from the dead. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And <laughs> lo and behold, it starts walking and yes. talking <laughs> yes. and all sorts of terrible things happen. And eventually happen. Uh, does a soft shoe to putting on the Ritz. Absolutely. One of the reasons that people hate GMOs, no matter what the evidence says. By the way, these people who are GMO deniers, can we call them g- deniers? Well, <laughs> they're like, alarmists, I would alarmists. say. Alarmists. Yeah, yeah. They're GM- denying that it's safe. Yeah. Right. GMO alarmists. No amount of evidence really will, will convince them because there have now been meta-analyses of literally hundreds of studies that show that there is absolutely no effect on health and that, you know, these things are perfectly safe, done over over decades. And yet they say, oh, no, it's still not enough evidence. To them, it's somehow not natural. Mm-hmm. They have this sort of deification of nature, yeah. that nature and natural some, somehow means good yeah. and unnatural means bad, which is really completely wrong because there are lots of things in nature that are really dangerous. How's your cyanide doing for you? <laughs> exactly. It's probably organic. Exactly. Yeah. You're all organic cyanide. I mean, where where's the line? Almost all the food we eat is unnatural in the sense that it didn't exist in nature before humans bred it into nature or introduced it into nature. So it's such a false dichotomy, and yet people seem to really embrace it. Okay, let's be fair, though. Mm-hmm. Is there some version, like maybe it's not because GMOs are bad, but some like worst practices with modifying these foods uh, that have had ill effects, that really could have ill effects? Is there any there there? Yes. Okay. That's true of almost anything. Sure. That we need to obviously be responsible and know what we're doing. And so one of the things that might end up happening is when you introduce something good for farmers, Mm -hmm. for instance, this is a plant that will be resistant to herbicides. That way you can have weed killers and the plant is still going to thrive. So good, right? The plant grows more better yield, good for farmers, good for food crop, bad for herbicide use, 
because you start using more herbicides mm-hmm. um, because then you're no longer scared of killing the plants. Mm-hmm. So you say, oh, let me just spray spray everything with it. And then the herb, you need more and more of a dose exactly. of herbicide. More exactly. herbicide gets into exactly. other so this plants. Exactly. This is, so this is, this is a potential danger. But, for instance, a lot of GMOs have been modified so that they need less pesticides Yeah. because they're producing the pesticide on its own. So all in all, you know, there are, some things are better, some things are worse. But let's talk about the implications of GMOs that will be completely just all of the avenues of research that will be closed off if we say that, you know, we can't experiment with GMOs, okay. that it's unnatural, that it's frankenfood. Talk about good labeling, right? The, you call it frankenfood and all of a sudden nobody wants to eat it. Things like environmental benefits we just talked about. Things like food safety, meaning how much of a food safety net do you have in countries that don't have enough food? Because these crops can be bred to be drought resistant. They can be bred to be more nutritious so that you need less to actually get more caloric content in food poor areas. They can resist a lot of the effects of global warming. We can engineer foods to do a lot of different things that are actually potentially incredibly beneficial, not just for the environment, but for humans. And there have been studies that actually looked at um, some of this stuff. For instance, a 2013 study looked at a place where uh, genetically modified cotton was introduced. And they found that calorie consumption and dietary quality was improved because family income was improved because now you had a better crop yield from the cotton and so farmers actually ended up Oh, I doing... see. A poor area. What country exactly. was this in? Um, this was in India. Right. Okay. Because so when we talk was... about calories, see, to Americans, and so much of this is to American ears, we say, oh my God, genetically modified foods. Without the Green Revolution, how many people would be starving in areas of the world we don't think about? And you say calorie consumption goes up. Wait, that's a bad thing. No, actually not for much of the world. Right, right. Then we have case studies where a virus was going to wipe out a crop and a genetic modification made made it possible that the crop survived. So for instance, papaya. Yeah. The fact that we eat papaya today has to do with the with genetic modification. Wow. There was a virus that was going to I happen not to... to eat papaya today. All right. Today I didn't eat papaya. All right, but yeah. yesterday. Yeah. All right. Um, and someday soon for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it ends up Papaya, papaya. <laughs> no. Call back. <laughs> um, so it ends up that papaya was almost eradicated by a virus and a Cornell scientist found a gene a modification that saved all of papaya. People got this. This could be the next Spielberg movie, Saving <laughs> Private Papaya. Yeah, yeah. The story of papaya. Basically, so we've been eating genetically modified papaya for decades. In Hawaii, when they found this out, they tried to... It would be so much more compelling if I like papaya. I swear to God. (laughs) If you're talking about... Do you like oranges? Sure, I like oranges. So did you read... Make it it personal to me. So oranges were... There was a huge problem in the orange crop in Florida. Uh This happened a few years ago. Um, And there was a wonderful investigative piece done by the New York Times that basically looked at the genetic modifications that enabled the orange crop to survive, without which you would not be having your freshly squeezed orange juice. Hmm. So we've got that. And have you heard about golden rice? I feel like a lot of people have heard about golden rice. I've heard about golden rice. So golden rice was introduced. Basically, the idea was, can we put beta carotene into rice? And this is one of the ones that's been around for the longest time, which is why I'm talking about it, because there was a lot of vitamin A deficiency and subsequent blindness in a lot of parts of the world, actually, because if you don't get vitamin A... 
bad things happen, such as your eyes do not develop, especially if you don't get it when you're small enough. And so scientists decided, well, they eat rice. Can we engineer rice so that it actually has all of those nutrients so that we can give you beta carotene in your rice. And right now they've perfected it to the point where you can get over 20 times what you originally could. And one bowl of rice gets you, I think, 60% of your daily beta carotene intake. And people look at this and they say, no, no, terrible. Well, come on. Uh, To be fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. Billions of people aren't starving and getting nutrition. But I'm a mom in Van Nuys, California. I got a soul cycle class from two to four, and I'm worried that Trevor is not reading at grade level. It's got to be the GMOs. If you're in California, you better be more worried about the fact that your state is in the middle of a drought uh-huh. and has been All for right. multiple years. Fine. And you know what we can do with genetically modified organisms? We can have species of plants that grow even in drought-like conditions. And so we can protect a lot of California's crops that would otherwise die out, killing the subsistence of a lot of farmers. And by the way, if you don't care about farmers, but you care about wine, Uh genetic modification can help the vineyards and the wine production that's going to be also hurt by droughts and by global warming. This is an example of me pulling an example out of my ear and Maria hitting it out of the park. So listen, (laughs) sometimes on Is That Bullshit, we leave up to really answering the question that was hanging in the balance, but other times it's just a satisfying smackdown. I think this is going to be the latter. Genetically modified foods are bad for us. Is that, that bullshit? It's absolute bullshit. In fact, let me end by telling you some of the current genetically modified things that are in development. Okay. We've got drought-tolerant corn, uh-huh. virus-resistant plums, Potatoes that have fewer natural toxins, toxins that California mom probably doesn't like toxins, so there will be fewer in those potatoes. That's right. Soybeans, oh, this California mom will be really happy with this too, with less saturated fat. I mean, that's definitely an American uh, genetically modified food if I've ever seen one, but it's in the pipeline. Virus-resistant beans, heat-tolerant sugar cane, salt-tolerant wheat, high-iron rice, Cotton that requires less nitrogen fertilizer. So a lot of different things that actually might play out in your life in ways that you didn't realize. I mentioned the home run. This is a slam dunk of bullshit detection. Maria Konnikova is author of The Confidence Game. She's a frequent eater of papaya. Thank you very much, Maria. Thank you. I'm going to go eat some papaya now. Have a papaya. And now the spiel had a Trump Trump. Well, as for the Democrats, Hillary won big. She went from going to being uncatchable to most of the news media now acknowledges she's uncatchable. Of course, you know, momentum, message, energy, ineffable adjective. That's not the word delegate. Yeah, that'll all also be in play. But on the GOP side, stuff's a little less solid. Trump used his victory speech to tell a stirring and oh-so-relatable tale of giving a trophy to Australian golfer Adam Scott while a barrage of negative ads played in the background. And then Adam comes and his this handsome kid from Australia, one of the greatest golfers in the world, made an unbelievable shot on the 18th hole to win the tournament. He's a great champion. And we're giving him the award. And just before we break for a commercial... We'll be right back with our great champion from Australia, Adam Scott. And here's the commercial. And I said, no. And it was two of them. Two of them. 
Oh, what a day that was. What a disaster. What a disaster. And did you, did you, former iron worker whose anger has been fueling the Trump campaign, did you see Adam Scott grip that seven iron on his approach shot? And did you see him rip it? Like the Chinese have been ripping us on trade deals. That Donald Trump, he's just tapping into populist rage. But the talk last night, among other non-golf trophy-giving Republicans, was about a contested convention. The debate was, look, if Trump comes in first, wouldn't it be a subversion of democracy to not let him get the nomination? Sure, he might not meet the threshold of 1,237 delegates to clinch the nomination, but wouldn't that be wrong not to give it to Trump if he were leading among delegates? Well, here's what Trump said about that on CNN this morning. If we're 20 votes short or if we're, if we're you know, 100 short and we're at 1,100 and somebody else is at 500 or 400 because we're way ahead of everybody, I don't think you can say that we don't get it automatically. I think it would be, I think you'd have riots. I think you'd have riots. I think he's right. I think you would have riots. Here's my evidence. They're already having riots. Have you seen the Chicago rally? And if there's going to be a riot in the future, will Trump offer to pay for it? Just asking. It wasn't just Trump and his people saying this. Nicole Wallace was saying, if you tell voters that their vote didn't count, you're thwarting democracy. But here's the answer to that line of reasoning. The GOP needs to change the norms, needs to change the question, needs to change the terms of the conversation. So instead of asking, how is it fair for the first person in delegates not to get the nomination? What you say is, how is it fair that the rules shouldn't apply to Donald Trump? What? Because the rule is you clinch with 1237 right? That's why there are all these news programs called the race to 1237. That's why all along we've been saying with 1237, you clinch. If you clinch with 1237, then without 1237, with less than 1237, you don't clinch. Those are the rules. So it is wrong to say who's ever in first clinches, because if that were the case, we wouldn't be using 1237. It would be a totally arbitrary number. We'd just say who's ever in first gets to be the nominee. And that clearly is not the case. That's why there are all these rules about second ballots and third ballots. Now, I know Trump supporters are supposedly rule breakers, right? So you might be asking yourself, well, why would they care about an argument about following the rules? Yeah, but they also have an authoritarian streak, all right? And the rules were, we're not talking about sticking it to some shadowy cabal. Oh, how we all hate shadow shadowy cabals. Although in the case of OPEC, we also hate self-acknowledged out-in-the-open cabals. But the point is this. You have rules saying you need 1237 to clinch. Therefore, short of 1237, you don't clinch. We're not saying you can't win. We're just saying you don't clinch. Let's not pretend, Donald, that you clinch. And you have to use, in advance in this argument, you have to use phrases like, you, Donald, have to play by the rules. You, Donald, have to play fair and square. And maybe, as you say this, throwing a dig at Trump University, you say this ain't Trump stakes, this ain't the New Jersey generals, this ain't bankruptcy. You gotta play by the rules. You say rules a lot. People like authoritarian figures, they'll fall into line. Now, Trump still well may rule at the convention. And it may be true that Cruz is more of a turnoff than Trump to the GOP bigwigs who will be deciding this. But the argument, at least, play by the rules, Without 1237, you don't clinch. That argument at least keeps the possibility of an open convention open. It's a well-reasoned argument. It's a forceful argument. If we know anything about Donald Trump, between reason and forcefulness, one of those things usually holds sway. 
That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi would make a great general election candidate, but a horrible general electric toaster. Steve Lichtai, the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, will have a hard time turning out the bass, but on his new EP with Swedish House Mafia, DJ Lickety Split turns up the bass. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is worried about the indiscriminate sampling of DJ Lickety Split. The gist, what a disaster. Oomperu de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>